0: I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. And I also interview producers of comic books, and my guest today is a producer. Tom Sachi is the creator genius behind Offbeats and UltraBot Go, Go, Go. Both are available through Antarctic Press. Now, Tom is a big fan of the Belgian-style comics like Tin Tin, and he's also a fan of the 60s anime cartoons particularly Speed Racer and Astro Boy. So we will talk about the cartoons and the comics that influenced the series that he has produced. Tom was born in Brooklyn, and he now lives in Manhattan. He is a comic book aficionado and has been since a very young age. His gateway into comic books was a television cartoon, and we're going to talk about that cartoon, reminisce about it for a bit, and also talk about why he moved away from superhero comics in the 80s and got more interested in European comics, manga, and heavy metal magazine, and how he learned about the process of producing comics by listening to a podcast. And I do kick back with the creator and ask him the fun questions I ask all my guests, including his island book and who is the one creator he'd want to meet, both of which you've probably not heard of, so this will be a learning experience. This episode is brought to you by the Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So now please join me with my guest, Tom Sachi, the creative force behind Offbeats and Ultrabot. Go, go, go. Here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to have you here. And let's talk comics. You have loved comics since you were seven years old.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much from watching the uh, original animated uh, Spider-Man cartoon when I was a kid. The one from the 60s. And that kind of like got me into them. I've seen comic books like on racks when I was a little boy. But they seem to be, I don't know, they were too colorful when I was really Kid, I used to love those Toho movies, those giant monster movies like Godzilla and Gamera. That's what I was all about. When that Spider Man show came on, it was pretty groovy, and everyone said, "Yeah, it's based on like you know a comic book." They actually opened up a comic book shop. And this is in the '70s, so this has got to be like 1976, I guess, seventy-five, seventy-six, and it must have been one of the first comic book shops in the country. And they had all like. Back issues of like uh, comic books, of course, like old Marvel and DC. My mom gave me like a little bit of allowance and I was able to get some comic books and famous monsters magazines and things like that. So they had like a ton of stuff. It was kind of neat to have that in Brooklyn, you know, at the time. I don't think there's any comic book shops really anywhere. So it was kind of nice.
0: What did it feel like going to a comic shop for the first time? Were you really amazed at the selection of books that they had all in one place?
1: Yeah, it was all like back issues. So the direct market I don't think really existed.
0: It was basically someone opening up
1: like a equivalent of an antique shop, I guess, or a knick-knack shop. And these guys who opened it, they specialized in like back issue stuff. They had everything in there. They had like comic books mostly, but they had like things like Life Magazine and Popular Science and Popular Mechanics. They had like all kinds of like periodical stuff. So it was kind of neat. I guess growing up in New York, you do have some advantages, especially back then, access to things. And uh, it was quite nice having that.
0: Yeah, I remember back then there weren't many comic shops, at least not in my area. I had never seen one before. It was always the Seven Eleven, 11 the drugstore, the Spinarax. Yeah, that's
1: how I initially saw comics was
0: via spinner racks when I was a little boy. It was wonderful, so I got all... These
1: back issues and stuff. You could find the villains that you wanted, you know? <laughs> that was the coolest thing about, the, like, I loved Spider-Man when I was a kid, but he had the neatest villains. Also animal-based, especially the original ones, it seemed like, like the rhino, the scorpion, the vulture. So it was kind of neat. It was
0: like an interesting kind of thing. The first comic shop I went into, something like you had seen, it was a bookstore up top, owned by the father, and then the son had the comics down in the basement. But it wasn't really a comic bookstore, You know what I'm saying? But it had comics, and I was like, whoa, I can't believe they're all in one place, because I would always just see the Spinner Racks. I never saw the back issues from the 60s, and I had read about them when they were referenced in the comics, like, see issue number four, where Cap comes back, and I'm like, oh, if I could ever see that, (laughs) you (laughs) know? Yeah, different times, yeah. But the cartoon, I love that cartoon, the Spider-Man 60s cartoon. There was something cheesy about it and cheap because they reused a lot of the animation.
1: Yeah, I'm a little kid, though, so what do I know? I'm like, you know, I'm just watching it, so. Yeah. I still think it's cool. Exactly. I don't care.
0: I still like it. You're right. They did repeat a lot of the,
1: uh, you <laughs> think about it. I haven't seen it in such a long time, but yeah, like, the guy would throw the boomerang like eight times. They would
0: show the same, <laughs> the same scene. Yeah, I remember that. And sometimes Spider-Man would talk. But it was from another episode, so they would just take the voice out, and his mouth would be—you could see it moving beneath the mask, but he wouldn't be saying anything because they just reused the.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he eating? But What's you know, he doing? Mouth, you know, you have to learn about lip lip sync, really. Like, you know, lip, yeah, because you don't see his mouth. So as long as it times out, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of cool shows back then. Like uh, CBS had Shazam, ISIS. One Room in the Hulk TV show. Yeah, I remember all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When animation was bad. Yes. Oh yeah.
1: (laughs) It was like the doldrum. Yeah, your kids have it so made. Like you know, they can watch animation whenever
0: they want access to it and it all moves. I wanted Superfriends to be so much more. I'm like, will you hit somebody?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's why I do like the comics more because they did. They were even when I was like getting a little old, I'm like, Yeah these things are pretty cheesy. But the comics were cool. Like, you know, they would
0: show the motion in my mind anyway. I'm curious. There came a dark ages for you, like me, when I got into high school I just kind of drifted away from comics. I lost, sounds like blasphemy, I just lost interest. I just wasn't really digging them, which was unfortunate for me because it was right before Miller and Simonson and Moore got really big. I stopped at just the wrong time, but why did you drift? Why did you lose interest at that time? It wasn't that I drifted. It was just that um, after a while, when you read these superhero books,
1: it's like watching a soap opera. It's the same thing. It was the same kind of uh, material. One book I was really uh, digging on, and I, was, and I read it from like the whole run, was uh, Moon Knight. And I think pretty much by the end of that run, I was done. The original Moon Knights and Kevich Drew. So that was a really cool book because it actually evolved. You read the first issue, and then you go to the last issue. Visually, this thing completely changed. So it was kind of neat. And I was going through adolescence. You could tell this guy drawing the book is actually getting tired of fighting villains a lot and stuff. And started going to these weird places towards the end. And um, I was very fortunate. That whole independent boom started. And I was really getting into like other things like horror and science fiction and you know just anything that wasn't superheroes. I was really interested in that. So um, you had the companies like Eclipse Comics and fumiko First Comics. They're putting out some superhero stuff, but they're definitely going in other directions and a lot of their books are in color which was nice she had to pay a little bit more I remember there weren't like marvel books that were printed on nicer paper she had to spend like almost two dollars which was fine i was like you know i had an after school job and you know so i spent my money on that yeah that was really cool and marvel actually Started a line called Epic, which was kind of like Vertigo, you know, when DC started doing that. And they were doing some amazing books, like one of my all-time favorite miniseries by Ted McKeever called uh, Plastic Forks. It's one of the best comics I've ever read. It's incredible. It's kind of like if um, Cronenberg, you know, like The Fly and uh, Scanners and films like that. Cronenberg meets uh, like John Woo or something like that. You combined the two. It's a really interesting book. It was all hand-painted. It was just beautiful. And that that was the direction. I said, oh, this medium can really go to places. It's not just superheroes and stuff. Because I was completely unaware of really the stuff from the 40s and 50s where comics would do all genres. But, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, all you got was superhero books. That and Heavy Metal Magazine. That was like the really cool adult version of comics growing up. It was like uh, it was very hip because it was created by the uh, guys who were doing National Lampoon. I think it had something to do with that. Uh, the guys who printed the publishers of National Lampoon discovered European comics, and they were doing that. And that was awesome. It was like uh, when I was a teenager, I was allowed to buy that. And they got a subscription to that, and that kind of like changed my world, discovering European comics, and particularly Belgian comics. Pretty amazing time, actually. The 80s were nice.
0: Yeah, I read a few of those, uh, Epic. Not the series that Marvel did, but they had their version of heavy metal called Epic that ran for a while. That had some pretty cool stuff in there.
1: Exactly. So that was like Marvel competing with heavy metal, yeah, back in the day. So it was interesting, like people think like indie comics are kind of a new thing, but really, I would say by like 83, 84, it really becomes a an entity. Like, you know, these small publishers uh, have a, a distribution system, obviously, like, you know, the first ever uh, direct market. They were flourishing at the time. I got out of comics when I was in college, I didn't have any money. <laughs> So <laughs> I, uh, I kind of took a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took a break from them. When I graduated, Image started. I didn't like any of it. I thought it was terrible. I was like, what is this stuff? It was just superheroes on like steroids. Some of the artwork was okay. I didn't like any of it. So I was really like turned off to uh, comics for a while. And uh, at the time, I was living in San Francisco. I'm a former computer animator. I'm one of North America's first computer animators. And I was working uh, up in... a san francisco and uh, I was just kind of like bored and i wandered into a shop and i said yeah let me see what's going on and it was it was uh, around like 1995 and it was mostly again like that image stuff was still holding on tight but my inception getting back into it i always loved stan sakai uh, Usagi jumbo i remember reading uh the first ever like issues of that in the 80s around 95 i got back into Usagi jumbo i picked up some trades so i always loved it and I couldn't believe he was still doing it. It was wild. It was an all ages book called Akiko. Akiko on the Planet Shmoo. It was cool. It was great. By this artist named Mark Crilly. And that was a standout. I'm like, wow, this looks so cool. It was like, it was different. It was um, all like gray toned, but the ink lines are really bold. Found out later what he would do is he would pencil it, scan the pencils in. You know, in Photoshop, he would put all this simulated like zipper tone, screen tone, and then print it out. And then he would ink it by hand, the lines. So it gave it a very unique look, and even character design wise, it was kind of unique. So that was kind of like, you know, me getting back into it. I've always wanted to do my own comics since I was like in my early twenties. So that kind of like set the wheels turning
0: for that. And how did you learn about the process to make your own comics? Back when we were little, it was like you work for Marvel, you <laughs> yeah, work for DC, you, like- you hope, or you do some kind of underground.
1: I had no idea how they were made. Like I said, I uh, come from an animation background. You know, I knew how traditional animation worked, uh, though I never, I can't draw off of it. My life depended on it. And computer animation is quite a different beast. So I kind of like had an idea. I said, obviously they're thinking like you know hand drawn cells. I was fortunate then to work at another animation studio in uh, Toronto, Canada. It was an amazing uh, experience. I was working on a fully computer animated series for children. So it was like a, a dream come true. It was like my Pixar. And uh, I befriended a, a really uh, he's like my best friend, a gentleman named uh, Kaja Blackley. He was actually a comic book publisher. He uh, ventured into uh, getting some uh, titles out. His uh, company was called uh, Mad Monkey Press, and they were doing these amazing books. Uh, The smallest book he had was eight and a half by 11. They were all oversized. And uh, doing all kinds of different stuff, fantasy, some science fiction. One amazing book I loved called Darktown. That was like uh, my entry point into that. And that was around that time in 95. uh, I discovered that book as well. And then like uh, two years later, I moved to Toronto. And we became really good friends. And I kind of like, you know, I would pester him a little bit and say, yeah, how exactly do you do your books? And he was drawing one of them, but pretty much the other ones he wrote. And then he would hire artists to, uh, you know, bring it to life. So it was pretty neat. He was like, this writer slash producer. And he kind of explained the process and it was all analog back then. And it was like, uh, yeah, you write the script, you break down the pages. He would show me his uh, actual scripts. And I was like, oh, okay, it's kind of like a movie script, the same idea. And he goes, you have to really think about the economy of the page. And he knew the stuff I liked. I mean, I like stuff with not a lot of dialogue, if any. Then when I uh, returned to New York, say a little over, say just about a decade ago now, I started listening to this podcast at work. I don't, I no longer work in animation, by the way, so I work in healthcare now. So, I, yeah, I kind of divorced myself from the creative end, uh, and it was kind of like bored. I was like, I really want to make my own comic. i trying to think about how to do it. I thought about if I could somehow draw it, and that's not going to work. So I started listening to this podcast called The Process. It's fantastic. It was three up-and-coming, at the time, they were up-and-coming comic book writers, explaining basically how to put together a pitch, how to solicit a pitch, what you doing to get rejections, and beyond. And uh, it was three writers. It's uh, Jeremy Holt, uh, Ryan K. Lindsay, and um, Curtis Weeb. They're all established now. They're all, like, you know, doing their thing. But it was great back then because you're listening to these guys putting together their pitches, their ideas, and all that. And I'm listening to them. I'm like, okay. I'm like, they're explaining the pitch. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. But at the same time, they're doing the pitches. I'm like, well, why don't you just actually put together – you're putting all this effort into these ideas that you love, especially one that you really love. And I was like, why don't you just do a whole issue? To me, that really proves that you can, you can do a book. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to produce – comic book, the way you produce an animated film or a play or or a short film, I'm going to come up with the concept and I'm going to basically sweat equity shared IP with a writer, which I did in John Ward. He's the writer of of all my books. who's amazing. And then visually, I know what I wanted. So I'm like, I'm going to set up a budget and I'm going to basically hire the artist who has a visual kind of uh, inkling to what I'm going for. And, uh, another side note, you might get a kick out of this. Also at the time I was loving, uh, the show, uh, I still love it. I think it's one of the greatest TV shows ever made. Best drama is Mad Men. And I would watch Don Draper and I'm like, this guy, basically, <laughs> this guy is, it's great because he's the creative director, but basically he would tell people, all right, come back to me with 20 tags and let me see what you got. And some of the, most of the ideas he didn't like, they were his ideas anyway. He would then throw that out and say, yeah, this is my idea. And then they would go back and like draw it or whatever, come back. Cause I never, I always was fascinated by ad agencies, how they work. So watching that, I'm like, oh yeah. He basically tells people what to do. He has an idea, tells them what to do, tells them to come back with it. And then he basically either says, yes, I like it, which is rare or say no. And this is what I really want anyway. But he never tells them in the beginning. Like later on, they're like, they're like yeah, I don't really, I don't see a, an astronaut. I see a cowboy, like, you know, will go there and stuff. So that was the other thing. I'm like, ah, oh, this, this guy can like come up with ideas. So can I. Like, you know. So yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. It's a unique way to produce a com- uh, create a comic, but it's been working out for me really well. I like it.
0: You find the idea. You sell it. You find. I out come up with the yeah. I come I
1: come up with the ideas. Like my ideas are brewing in my head. Yeah.
0: And then you sell the concept. You find a way to emotionally connect with the audience, which is what Don would do. Yeah, He'd tap into something, and they go, yeah, that's it. So we've learned a few things so far. One, that when it comes to comics, don't give up on them because you're not happy with the same old, same old. You found much more variety in comics looking at all the things out there. Yeah,
1: I haven't read a superhero book
0: since Moon Knight, since I was like 15, 15.
1: Yeah, I know which ones I read, actually, which I did dig. Or those ones that Tim Sale was doing, like uh, Daredevil Yellow and Hulk Gray. Those I read because they were beautiful. They are visually, like, incredible. Yeah. And other than that, yeah, I haven't
0: read – I don't read superhero books. Well, they're beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. And, no. Yeah. Well, but the other thing, too, is that a lot of people have a problem with, including me, and it's also a budget thing, is massive crossovers. Like, there's just so much in there. And how many times can you retell a story that tend to find new ways to make it exciting, you know? It's amazing, like, both of these companies haven't came out with new
1: characters and like since the 70s. Like, at least in the 70s, they had some new ones, like Nova. And, uh, oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of a few others. They had, like, a few others. I remember this one I used to read called The Human Fly, which is based on a real daredevil. Yes. devil yes. in real life. Yeah, I used to like that book. But, yeah, I haven't seen really, like, a new, I don't know. Uh, they can have it. Marvel DC have all the superheroes
0: they want. <laughs> They're afraid to try new things, so it's hard to sell. Back in the 70s, I loved it because they would throw anything to the wall to see if it would stick. They came with all kinds of characters. They didn't care. Torpedo, 3D Man. They didn't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah,
1: Torpedo. Yeah, <laughs> I love
0: that character. That was a great-looking
1: <laughs> character, man. Yeah, they need to bring him back.
0: <laughs> Those books were some of my favorites, like Marvel Premiere and Marvel Spotlight, where they just had different characters in yeah. every month. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was neat, fun stuff.
0: Um yeah. I don't really want to talk about superheroes, if you don't mind. (laughs) But
1: the other thing I was going
0: to say, though, was that not only the variety of comics will keep you interested, but the value of podcasts, because you learned from that podcast. And Ryan K. Lindsay was on the show, actually, way back when I started. Um, But the value, you can learn so much by listening to the podcast, which is why I listen to them, because I I learn so much, no matter what the subject, it's so much fun.
1: Yeah, that podcast is amazing. Um, I know uh, Curtis Weed, he keeps um, like a page. Like, you know, it's still there. You can listen to all the episodes. There's golden nuggets in it. You know, I'm so glad that Jeremy, Ryan, and uh, Curtis did that. It was groundbreaking to me. It was like, they gave me all the tools that I needed. Yeah, so when Offbeat started, I actually did do a pitch. You know, I sent it out, and I, I didn't really hear anything. I'm like, you know, I really want to go forward with this. And John was like, yeah, let's, like, you know, we both said, yeah, let's
0: actually really do it. Let's make a, an actual miniseries. That first comic, how did you come up with the
1: name? <laughs> it had a bunch of names. <laughs> uh i had several names at first like about like three or four but the one that stuck was offbeats because of the era it's of the time like beatniks jazz the 50s so and there were no other comics with that name i couldn't find any <laughs> so that was the other one that was the other thing yeah i'm point. like i'm looking i couldn't i couldn't find any you know uh because for a few of the other names like we had dead beats there was a comic book named that Low Lives, Uh, there's a comic book named that. I found Off Beats, and it seemed to fit. I'm like, yeah, because the characters are on the fringes of the uh, establishment of that time.
0: Now, that story is an action crime series inspired by the Belgian comics like Tintin and Frank Sin City. Now, help me out. I'm ignorant. Mm -hmm. Explain the Belgian comic style. It's kind of like if you
1: ever looked at Tintin or Asterix, it's got this very cartoony character Mm -hmm. design uh animated almost like an animated character design the signature is usually dot eyes the characters seem to have that these like dot like you know pie eyes dot eyes which i love and the other interesting thing about uh european comics in general even the belgian style like and this goes back to the 50s when they were first really coming out is that the situations that the characters would be in would be very uh realistic so you have these cartoony kind of characters going through their paces in like, you know, realism. One of my favorite books is this, uh, his uh name is Maurice Tutelou or something like that. It's French. I can't I can't pronounce it. But uh he has this great character, it's like a private eye named Gil Jordan. And uh Fantagraphics actually reprinted like uh, two volumes of uh, of his work. And it's great because this uh very cartoony world, you know, the characters are very cartoony. But the situations that he's in, he's a private eye. It's very realistic. And I always love that contrast. I think it's the coolest thing ever. I'm not really big on realism in comics when they're even drawn that way. It overloads the brain. It's like too much information. You got to put together the panels in your mind. For me, anyway, I'm a slow reader. I love comics that are like almost like storyboards. They just go. And I... Don't like a lot of dialogue either. I'm not a fan of that. So I feel the art should stand uh, head and shoulders on the words. Like the art is really the, um, like I would say the words are the fuel and the art is the engine. Or you could say the words are the engine and the art is the car. And it goes.
0: Now, why did you set the story in the 50s? What was the appeal to you there? I think I
1: want to be born in like 1960 and work for Hugh Hefner.
0: (laughs) Or actually 19.
1: Actually, I take that back. Born in 1940, and then I'm 20, and I work for UF in some capacity. <laughs> I just, I'm, I, I, it was unique growing up in the 80s, because I was a teenager of the 80s, but all the films I loved, The Outsiders, Diner, Popo Greenwich Village, they were all like these period pieces that usually took place in the 50s or 60s. And that was like my first inkling to that. I always love the visual of it, the mid-century vibe. It's different. The advertising is very uh, low-key. It's like there's no really heavy-duty billboards. There's no brands. People don't wear brands. It's very subdued. It's a different kind of vibe. Um, I kind of dig that.
0: Now tell me about your writer, John Ward, because he has the patter down of the dialogue. He really taps into it. Tell me about him working on writing the book. How you two collaborate on that? When we first
1: contacted John, I was like, you know, we were spitballing,
0: like, you know, how's this gonna work?
1: I just said a few things. I gave him like a few like, you know, ideas I want. I said, look, the main character, he's originally from Pittsburgh, he's a mechanic, and he's got and he has to leave New York for reasons I won't say. The main character is a bit is a trouble magnet, as you can see from the first issue, uh, Jim Rhodes. That's his name, Jim Rhodes. And I gave him that. And I said, yeah, Nick, uh, he's very influenced by the beats. He wants to be a writer. Like, you know, that's happening at that time. It's like at its height. So New York, you know, the village is very Beatnik central. Then I said, I want an element of jazz in that. And he came up with the character of Booker Brown. Uh, he's like a streetwise, like, you know, a uh, hustler from uh, Harlem, but, uh, he can play a mean sax and they become intertwined, you know, they become friends, uh, through circumstance. And in terms of like that slang, I wanted some of that. They spoke a completely different way back then, a lot of these guys. So I have this um, really cool book. It's called Straight from the Fridge. And it's all like slang from like the 20s to like the 60s. And it has like all these like cool like phrases. I mailed him a copy of the book. I said, yeah. I said, look at this book. It has some really cool stuff in it. He probably took some, you know, little snippets, little words and stuff uh, in that. So from that book, so it's kind of neat.
0: Yeah, it really is unique about the book because I haven't seen that kind of dialogue in it before. We try not to use too much of it, be too much of a contrast. Like I can't understand anything. And there is a character in the book called
1: Woogie. He's literally off the wall. Like you know, he's like mental. He completely speaks in like this, like almost like
0: gibberish, but it's interesting. We peppered it with that with that kind of stuff. Now, the artist that you have on board, Giles Crawford, he's from Australia, so and really well done too. Tell me about how you got him on board for the series.
1: It's wild, like, you know, these books now, like, you know, if you want to be creative because you you're not working with like 30 years ago if I went through my own comic, it would be like it'd be either someone local or somehow the pen palette or something like that. So now it's like, great. Like, yeah, John Ward is British Canadian. He lives in Vancouver. Giles Crawford at the time, he, he's American Australian. He's a dual citizen. At the time he was living in Pennsylvania, but now he lives in England. He lives in Manchester. I found him on Facebook. I have uh, quite a vast network of uh, artist friends on Facebook and someone posted one of his like illos and then I followed it and I saw he could do sequentials and he has this natural uh, proclivity to, uh, the Belgian style. And he loves Tintin. He was like, you know, he had these homages to Tintin. He just had this really cool style, which I love. It's definitely a European influence. He is a traditionally trained story artist, an uh, animation story artist. So he had this like storyboard kind of style. So, really, the more I look at it now, it actually feels more like a storyboard style to me than anything else. It it's definitely has a peppered, again, with a Belgian kind of look, but it really is almost like storyboard. So it's kind of neat. He's amazing. He was able to do all four issues in like less than eight months. Wow. And he did it all digitally. Yeah, best. I gave him a lot of leadway. I said, look, you know, I know this is like your first book, big book. Don't worry about backgrounds. It's all to be against black. When in doubt, black it out. So I made it a little easier for him.
0: So folks who like crime noir and stories set in the 50s, they would like this. And also I thought another book that was similar in style, that probably you would like, too. Rock Candy Mountain that came out through Image. Kyle Starks did that. I like Kyle Starks. Yeah, his stuff is fun.
1: He's, um, he's becoming quite a writer, that guy,
0: I noticed. He's like actually writing and having other artists draw his books now. Now, your colorists, you have two, Dan Thompson and Lee Milewski, who was on the show, actually. Lee's been on before.
1: He's my color god. I don't want to work with anyone else. He's <laughs> awesome. Um, I initially had uh, Dan Thompson. He colored the first three issues. He's actually um, quite a prolific comic artist. Uh, he's quite talented. He was someone I was considering for uh, doing offbeats, but he couldn't do it because he draws his own book. It's called um, Rip Haywire, Homage to like Sunday Strips. but It's really funny. Uh, it's got this really cool cartoony style. It's almost like uh, Alex Toth, a lot lighter, like uh, simplified. He does all his own colors, and his colors are really like brilliant. They're very flat and bold. So I thought immediately, I'm like, I don't want to go in a rendered realm i want to go in that flat european belgian it is kind of the belgian style too like back in the day it was very flat and minimal he did the first three which came out fantastic and then lee did the fourth issue he just basically piggybacked from dan's stuff
0: and then henry barajas i hope i said that correctly did the lettering on all four books he did uh
1: the lettering for all four books chose a really cool font it kind of looks like a those bazooka joe kind of <laughs> reminds me of those Bazooka Joe, remember Yeah, uh-huh, you know, yeah kind of reminds me <laughs> that, the font that he used. So, yeah, it all came out really, really nice, I think. my first time effort. How did you sell this idea to Antarctic Press? This book is quite old. <laughs> It was finished uh, in 2013, it was done. Uh, All the coloring anyway, the letters weren't there yet. And I was shopping around the first issue to pretty much every publisher, pretty much uh, either got rejected or never heard from them. And then about like, I'd say maybe about a year ago, I'm friends with Austin, Austin Rogers, who's affiliated with, he's an editor with Antarctic Press. And he's been following it for a while. Like when I first saw him posting like some pitch pages. And he said, yeah, he goes, you know, uh, Antarctic Press is, you know, looking at a lot of stuff now and we're very interested. And I was like, great. I sent them all four issues that were done in letter by that time. They said yes.
0: It's all connections, as they say, right? (laughs) Yes. And now where can folks find the book? How can they get a hold of copies of it?
1: Issue number one is out now in in the shop. So it will be out in Comixology uh, probably in about two weeks digitally. I don't know. How else would you get a comic book? (laughs) <laughs> uh that's the sad thing isn't it you would think they're so popular now i wish they were like the guy peter cimetti over at uh alterna he's my hero i love what he's doing i would love to see comic books go back to like if you could buy a newspaper you could buy a comic book i love that idea i'd like to see something go back to that yeah isn't that sad like i don't know where else... i guess you can you can order direct from uh, also an autocrat. they have a website so you could try
0: that out as well I'll put that link in the show notes so folks have it. And also, always try your local comic shop first because they're always willing to accommodate if they can. Now, you have something else you're working on. This is going to come out as a one-shot to start with, but there'll be more. And this is Ultrabot Go, Go, Go. Why three goes? (laughs) Or is that just the way it's done in in Japan?
1: (laughs) No, it's a a play on a lot of stuff. So I absolutely love, it's my other passion. Again, it goes back to that late 80s, uh, around like 1987, they started a, reprinting uh, Akira, which I love and was in color, the first Akira manga before the movie came out and I was loving it. I'm like, this is amazing Like, and then I started discovering all these other Japanese comics like Area 88 and uh, The Lone Wolf and Cub and I just, you know I was devouring this stuff, Pineapple Army like all these Japanese books were coming out and they were completely different from anything I ever seen before, but just in terms of pacing I'd read the book in less than five minutes sometimes, some of them Cause there'll only be like 30 pages and you have to read the next story, but it moved. I'm like, wow, I've never seen so much uh, ferocity, so much uh, energy in a comic. And um, I always loved uh, Astro boy, like, you know, the look of it. I never really got to see any of the comics. But I remember the TV show a little bit when I was a kid and Gigantor as well. Getting into like Japanese comics and in the back of a few of those old, like, you know, those old issues of like Area 88, those Japanese comics from the 80s, they would talk a little bit about, they'd have like these little like, um, I guess like little articles in the back and they would showcase some of the pages from those early, those comics from the early 60s. Those look really, really cool. They were really cartoony and they, and they had a lot of energy. And um, I was very fortunate. They opened up a Japanese bookshop, a used bookshop in Manhattan, discovered it by accident. When I was working at the time, it was like a block away from where I worked. All they had was manga. It was like, you walked in there, it was just wall-to-wall manga. It was all I guess the Japanese expatriates that were living in Manhattan at the time, uh, working. I asked, I said, do you have me Astro Boy? And he had this whole section of like Tezuka, all of his like disciples of that era. And, I remember, and they were selling all these books for like a dollar these mangas because they weren't popular i guess so it was great i went home with like you know like two big two, two big bags i a barely like lift a full of these uh japanese comics you know reprints from the early 60s and i've never ever read anything to this day i've never read anything that has that much energy in a book before like comics wise i can't i can't read the, the japanese at all i don't i don't know how to read japanese but i can completely understand there was such clarity to the storytelling I guess the storytelling was simplified, but they're really pushing these characters, their limits in terms of like, you know, what they can do physically on the page. I think it has a lot to do with other things going on as well. I could get into, I've never ever really seen an American book that had this kind of energy before and pacing and layouts. I've always wanted to do an homage to this style. So you ask the question of why is it go, go, go? So it's kind of like a play on the words. It's like back in the sixties, they would have like a go, go, like, you know, like, uh, know yeah. So it's a little bit of that. But actually what it is, it's truly homage to uh, the creator of uh, Speed Racer. In Japan is called Mach, like a, you know, like a Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3. Mm-hmm. So it's called Mach Go, Go, Go. It means five, five, five. Go, like each me, san go. Go is the letter five. So it's an homage to Speed Racer. And if you notice on Ultrabot's belt buckle, he has a five. He's the fifth iteration of something that came before him. He's the fifth version. Hopefully, we're going to be doing a Kickstarter to
0: get an actual series out. So. And that'll be later this summer. I'm hoping to get the Kickstarter
1: probably around June. And then the first issue, hopefully, and that'll no, probably take a bit longer than that, if I get the funds. The first issue will probably be out in winter 2020, I hope. That is so cool.
0: I remember Speed Racer because I watched that a lot.
1: Yeah, that was really the only Japanese cartoon I remember as a kid when I was really young. And then Battle of Planets, yeah. I don't remember that. <laughs> they talked very strange on that show, yes. Speed Racer, yes. because they're trying to, which is weird now because now people talk like Speed Racer, especially commercials. I grew up on like teen shows, like 90210 and stuff. I love that. And 21 Jump Street. I tried watching some new teen shows, like on freeform, and I can't watch them because they speak so fast. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> it's incredible. The dialogue is, I'm like, whoa, I'm like the offspring of the MTV generation. And I'm like, oh, so they're like Japanese,
0: but they speak in English. <laughs> 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 that was such right? a cool show. Yeah, Spierer was so cool. I can't remember the name of the episode, but I know there was a two-parter where there was this big race, and there was lava and volcanoes. And I just remember that oh, one being course. the best. Great,
1: yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. You should um actually, they have this beautiful. You can probably find it on the cheap on like eBay or Amazon. They have this beautiful um, box set of the original Japanese comics. It's like right around the time the show premiered oh. Probably like a year. Almost all these shows usually started out as manga. Like it, huh. it seems to be the... Tr- yeah, they all start out as manga and then they become anime. Even back in the 50s and 60s and stuff. Like Astro Boy was first a comic. Gigantle was first a comic. And then they become, you know, become so popular. They created animated uh, content for it. So the actual comics are really good. They're like, again, full of energy, these amazing like layouts that you don't really see in American books. Very unique stuff. Yeah, I highly recommend it.
0: Well, your book, Ultrabot Go, 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 I think it's coming out May? Probably uh, like from Memorial Day or a week after, tentatively. It's coming out the end of May. Tentative through Antarctic Press as well. And the artist on this one is Jason Williams, who did a fantastic job with the anime look. Yeah, he's my hero. Yes, Jason is the best. And the pacing is great. It's a breakneck pace, man. Things just move along. Yeah. There's no slowness in this book at all. Action, action, no.
1: action. <laughs> the most action-packed 22 pages you'll ever read. Like, stand by that. This is the first comic book idea that I had. This is like, this goes back, yeah, like a little over a decade ago, probably about almost 15 years ago. I had this idea. Came to me actually like, you know, like you ever have that lucid state when you're like waking up, but you kind of like dreamlike. That's where it came to me. I had an idea. Of, well, it was more like Astro Boy, but this idea of like, you know, uh, Frankenstein or Robocop, like, you know, his soul is now trapped in the body. In this case, a giant robot. <laughs> and uh, I had this idea for a while, that I needed to really find an artist who can draw it. And again, through Facebook, I found Jason's art. He just draws cartoony like no one else. Has this uh, really great uh, style to himself. Very modern, very contemporary, uh, very like Cartoon Network or um, or Nickelodeon. So I contacted him and he was itching to do a book. And I said, look, I go, uh, are you familiar with like a mid-century Japanese manga? And he's like, not really. Cause you know, I know like Astro Boy and Gigantle and stuff. I said, so, look, I go, I have this idea. I presented it to John. And what I did was, it's really smart. This is what I recommend doing. If you're going to take the, uh, the path of a producer of comics, like, you know, and you want to hire a writer and an artist, I recommend buying doubles of all your favorite books and sending it to him. Okay. So like with yeah, with John, like you know, we initially started low Lives. I sent him all the books that I love, like you know, like I sent him a big box of like this is the kind of pacing the writing I like. And he got it. It's not really a lot of dialogue. It's like the imagery is really carrying the story. And with Jason, I just mailed him a big box of like all these 60s uh like you know, Astro Boy and Cyborg 009, some giant robo. That's really like a big influence. It's giant robo uh, uh manga that I gave him. And then when he was looking at that he was like, okay, I see what's going on. It took him a little while because he doesn't naturally draw like that. But a little over a month, and he got it. He got the style, got the pacing down, the layouts. And John did an amazing job with the book. The script actually reads lightning quick, and it's very minimal. Very little descriptions, just some dialogue. He really took that script and he made it in his own, and the image that I wanted. I really lucked out. The book I'm most proud of to date.
0: Well, it looks great, and. You also have Lee Milewski doing the colors, and he really killed it on this book because there's almost like a texture or grain to the coloring. Yeah. That looks really
1: good. It is a love letter to the early 60s uh, Japanese manga. But I also wanted contemporary touches. Like I got rid of all the eye shine on the characters. You know, Japanese really, they love their like shines on the eyes. I'm like, no, let's make it modern. We'll just make it flat and black. I wanted bright colors, and I said, on the characters, pretty flat, but yeah, you can go off a little bit bit on the background. Yeah, there's some kind of nice stuff going on, a little texture to it, peppers it nice.
0: So that's going to be a one-shot, and then... Hopefully we'll see that Kickstarter coming up. Would it be the same team most likely working on it? Yeah, I really don't want anyone else to do it. <laughs> John's Good. writing the script
1: now. Excellent. I hope Jason, Jason said he wanted to draw it. Uh, I'll get back to him on that, but I'm hoping he can. And Lee again said, yeah, if his uh, schedule is not too tied up, he'll be able to color it. So it's really Jason. I really don't want anyone else to really draw it. He put a lot of effort into that to learn that style. So it'd be like a whole process again to do that. And I didn't really want to do that. So he
0: did such a great job. Very good. Well, looking forward to that. Do you have time for kicking back with the creator? We're going to ask fun questions of my guests. All right. Now you're working in healthcare now, but when you're not, what do you do for rest and relaxation?
1: It's kind of tough. I work nights. Mm, (laughs) So it's a different kind of vibe. Secret of my health, though, keeps me young. Um, (laughs) I moved to Manhattan, finally. I always wanted to live here. I'm finally living here now. So, you know, I got a couple of like locals that I like to go local bars I like to go to. And I know, you know, I know some of the bartenders. Some of my friends, if they're not busy, they'll hang out. Um, I try to read when I can. I try to do that before I go to work and on weekends. Uh, still got a ton of books I'm going through. Not really too much. I just go see some bands sometimes. I love jazz, but it's unfortunate. It's a, become a premium in this city as well. Used to be a great jazz bar. It's gone now. Like so sad. I used to love going there. It was great. It was, um, you know, no cover, no minimum. If you hung out by the bar and it was this beautiful round bar and they had a nice stage for uh, trios and sometimes up to like six tets would play. It was really nice. It's kind of rough when you work nights because uh, you think you have all this free time, but you still have to sleep. So before you know it, it's like you don't have to really get up
0: for work, right?
1: <laughs> so before you know it, it's like, oh, it's one o'clock. I'm like, yeah, and I got to be in work in three hours. But it's nice, though. It's, a, it's definitely a de-stressor. I'm single, so... Also, uh, dating is an interesting thing, you know, meeting women has always been a unique proposition for me, so (laughs) kind of fun,
0: (laughs) and not. (laughs) It's good you're into Manhattan, though, because if you want to meet a lot of people and you want to find places for good entertainment, you're in the right place. It's
1: fine. I lived in a small town for a year, just a little over a year ago, of like only 8,000 people, and that was a contrast, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I like the suburbs, but only for about a week, and I'm a city boy at
0: heart. (laughs) Okay, Thinking back to a favorite birthday of yours that stands out in your mind, what was that birthday and what happened that you remember? I have to say they've been pretty mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> hey, uh, I you will had say them, that had, a, I had a,
1: yeah, had a great. <laughs> and it's funny, the one I, I really enjoyed, I planned. It was my 40th birthday. That was a decade ago. Um, Like, again, I'm really also into, like, uh, Northern Soul, 60s Soul mod style kind of, like, thing. And I knew there's actually a little bit of a scene going on in New York where they have, like, these retro parties. Once a month, they'll have, like, a big, you know, soul night. And it'll be, like, you know, soul and uh, garage rock. And and all these guys spin 45s. They're really into it. Like, these DJs do not go digital. It's all about the 45s. Just, like, collectors of comics. It's funny. It's the same thing. And I had my 40th birthday at this uh, bar in Williamsburg called the Huckleberry. Just kind of a class act for Williamsburg at the time. It was a really classy bar, and I invited my friends and family. It was nice. You know, I got all decked out, wore a nice uh, one of my vintage mod suits from the 60s and, you know, cut the rug and had a drink or two at the time. And it was nice. Yeah, that was, like, my favorite birthday when I can remember. Yeah, I tried to make a really big deal out of birthdays. It's like, you know, I'm lucky to be alive, so, you know. Yeah, every day is a birthday.
0: Well, thinking back to middle school, what posters and pictures did you have on the bedroom
1: wall? I had the smallest room in the house, and I had a big house growing up. I had four sisters and a brother. (laughs) Oh, man. Big big family, but me and my brother had to share the same room. So there was a a premium on the the wall space. (laughs) (laughs) My brother was a bit older than me. He's uh, almost 10 years older, so he was done by then. I used to love... uh, those Godzilla and Gamera movies, Mm -hmm. I used to cut out uh, out of my famous monsters whenever they'd have uh, the Godzilla uh, pictures up and co, I would hang, I would always tape those up all the time. I had like, my wall was littered with them. I used to love that stuff. That was like my first real inception into the fantastic was the
0: Japanese giant monster movies. I used to love them was a kid. So I used to have those all over my wall. And this is the desert island book question, okay? Don't worry about survival. You don't need survival guides, but for pleasure. What is the one book you want to have just to pass the time? Something that would make you think or make you happy?
1: My all-time favorite book, and it could be a graphic novel, right? It doesn't have to be. Oh, sure. Absolutely. A a, a prose book. It's my all-time favorite book, regardless if it's a graphic novel or prose. I still think it's the greatest comic ever created, and no one knows about it, and everyone should. You went back to, like, remember, like, the obscurities? I was trying to find my way in the comic shop and trying to find the unique stuff. Well, this book... In my opinion, I think it's the greatest graphic novel I've ever created. It's called Sparks, and it's creator artist named uh, Lawrence Marvitt. It's well over 400 pages, but it reads at a click. Lawrence Marvitt is uh, quite the animator. He comes from a heavy-duty animation background as a story artist. This book is just probably one of the best coming-of-age stories I've ever read. It also has action to it, and it's adult, but it looks like it could be a comic book from the 1950s. It's all black and white. But visually, the style is could be from like a UPA studios or something. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's very mid-century animation style. It's very minimal. It hits all the the marks that I love. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it came out through. Slave Labor back in the uh, early 2000s. No fanfare, unfortunately. I don't know if a lot of people know of it. It's available on Amazon and stuff. I highly, highly recommend it. I think it's the greatest graphic novel you'll ever read. Very few have come close to it.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, because I've never heard of it, and I think a lot of people haven't either, so now they will. Sometimes
1: I'll post some stuff about it on Facebook, and I'm friends with the artist, and he loves it, and I do that. And he's like, oh, he's like, you know, thank you for posting that. I really appreciate it.
0: Now, here's another hypothetical. If... They were to make an action figure view. Antarctic Press. Action figure view. What would be your accessory? Something that says something about you.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, it's funny because I'm such a minimalist. I don't like rings of watches really or anything like that. Like an accessory, like a physical accessory, right? Like you mean something that you would see, right? Yep. Um, it would have to be some kind of like a watch that can like do stuff. <laughs> I don't
0: know Not what. an Apple watch. <laughs> But a watch that can not do an stuff. Actual
1: watch. Like it actually watch yeah, that can do stuff. Like I don't know, like let me read minds or something like that. like something <laughs> yeah. not like crazy, like stop time, because yeah, obviously it goes with it, but maybe like it does something else. Like uh yeah, like I can read people's minds or something like that. Or uh I don't know. <laughs>
0: <Stop>. <laughs> I wanted something something ubiquitous so you wouldn't notice it. That was tough. <laughs> well, this one's easy. What is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing. Now, what I love,
1: is these uh, great sodas. And I don't know if they have them in the rest of the country, but there's these great soda pops from this company called uh, Boilin. They made all, all cane sugar. They used to do classics like cola, root beer, black cherry, Shirley Temple. Nice stuff, fun. So usually when I have
0: like, you know, a slice of peach or something once so if I see it there, I'll be like, oh, yeah, grab a bottle. And my final question, who is the one person, a creator, either of comics or cartoons, That you'd want to meet in person that you have not had the chance to.
1: He's supposedly still alive. He's a Japanese comic book creator, uh, artist, goes back to the mid century. He's the greatest comic book artist, in my opinion, ever. And again, Americans don't know him. Um, His name is Sampai Shirato. He uh, created mostly uh, Feudal Era Japan. It's about ninjas, it's about a ninja clan. I would love to meet him. I believe he's still alive. He's in his early 80s. He's the greatest comic book artist ever. He's doing things. In the uh, late 50s that Americans, in terms of storytelling, in terms of pacing, that Americans, I think they look at his stuff, they'd be like, I can't believe this. He's doing wide panels, action shots, everything. It's incredible. It's all black and white. You know, because that's how they did it back then. I would love to meet him and just say thank you. He's the greatest, in my opinion.
0: Well, you're giving us a lot of good advice and a lot of good ideas, things to check out unsung heroes that we need to know about. Yeah,
1: Sanpai Shirado is going to be tough. In that early wave of manga, he had uh, two books come out. And other than that, and that's his later stuff. It's changed. Visually, it changed. It becomes more realistic, actually. So I guess that's what the uh, public demanded in Japan at the time. But uh, his early stuff has never been translated. If you asked me if I won the lottery today, I would definitely be, become a comic book publisher and I'd get the rights to all that mid-century Japanese stuff, especially his stuff, and translate it and get it out there. That's what I would love.
0: But the stuff you have now, Off Beats, which is complete, and you can get it through Antarctic Press and coming up, UltraBot, Go, 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 coming out at the end of May thereabouts. So look for that one shot. And, Tom, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thanks so much for
1: having me. It's been great. Thanks, Chris.
0: And next week, my guest is veteran comic book artist Rags Morales. Rags has worked on Countdown to Infinite Crisis, Batman Confidential, and the New 52 reboot of Action Comics, and as the artist of Turok and Geomancer for Valiant Comics back in the 90s, and he's returning to Valiant to work on Bloodshot. So I will speak with Rags about the early days working in comics back in the 90s and working at Valiant and what he has planned for Bloodshot in the months ahead. And Rags has the best answer yet to what would be your accessory if someone were to make an action figure of you. So please join me next Thursday for that interview. Now, if you'll notice the acoustics of this podcast, it's a little more echo and ambient sound from the room around me. I've kind of thinned down things in the household. I have some very exciting news that I will share with you after my interview with Rags Morales. My voice is a bit shot. I just came back. Uh, from traveling to Las Vegas last week, spent the week there with the family. We all got sick, except for my youngest son. We all picked up some kind of bug while flying on the airplane, I'm sure. And uh, we're just glad to be back have a chance to recuperate, get back to work, and get settled in before we make a very big change. So uh, again, I will share that with you next week. Uh, The podcast will probably not change in any way, shape, or form. So you can look forward to continued episodes of Creator Talks coming your way. The only change I think I'm going to make is to cut back the frequency to twice a month. My executive producer, Mrs. Callaway, has asked that I help out a little more understandably given some big changes coming up. So I think I'm going to be doing an episode every other week on Thursdays. That way I can give you the best interviews with the most interesting and best guests I can find. So the quality will stay high. I do not want to slip on the standards of the production of the podcast and the guests I bring you. But I will let you know now that I do have a full slate of interviews coming up for the month of May, plus returning guests coming up in the Creator Corner segment to give us an update on what they are working on now. And now for the usual business, you can reach me through email at creatortalks.com. That's at creatortalks.com. You can find information about my guests and previous podcasts on the website, creatortalks.com. And follow me on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. And you can see my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze comics from my personal collection that I will share with you on social media. And please share your memories of those books And your own comics from the Bronze and Silver Age with the rest of the Creator Talks family. This show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, alexa enabled devices, and through YouTube and now Stitcher. Please take a moment. Now is the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. It goes a long way to helping my show. And if there are other shows that you like and you listen to regularly, these shows are free. So that is the best way to show your support so that others can find the show in the Apple iTunes library. So just go to podcasts, look up Creator Talks, and please leave a star rating. And while you're in there, show some love for the other podcasts you like and leave them a star rating as well. And of course, you can help by talking up the show and sharing it with your friends who may also like comics and want to know more about the creators behind those comics Who are they as people? That is the heart of this show. That's what I love so much about doing it because it adds so much to the enjoyment of the comics when I know who are the people that are putting their blood, sweat, and tears into those books month after month after month. And once again, I want to thank my sponsor, The Comic Book Shop in Wilmington, Delaware, for sponsoring this show. And thank you for spending time listening to this show. I know you have a lot of choices. And thank you for choosing Creator Talks. Enjoy your friends, family, and comics. This has been Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks. Until next time.